This is a Federal News Network podcast. Navy brass know their shipyards are in rough shape. They plan to spend $21 billion on renovations over the next two decades. But the shipyard improvement program is off to a rocky start. The backlog of needed improvements is growing, not shrinking. Costs are escalating, and in at least one case, facility conditions are getting worse. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. Navy officials say they're still learning lessons about how to approach the massive recapitalization project for the service's four aging public shipyards. Four years into the project, they say they now have a better handle on how to control costs. And after years of deferred maintenance, they're fully committed to the project called the Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Program. Jay Stephanie, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development and Acquisition, says it's a once-in-a-century opportunity to modernize the shipyards, and the service's 2023 budget reflects its biggest investment in years, $1.7 billion in 2023 and a total of $8.3 billion over the next five years. We understand that for SIOP to succeed, we must properly plan and execute SIOP work without impacting the shipyard's ability to execute their mission. Balancing SIOP's needs with that of the fleet and the shipyards is and will continue to be critical and an iterative process involving all stakeholders. We are committed to working as a team to ensure the program is ruthlessly executed to avoid impacting fleet operations or ship maintenance periods, and conversely, that ship maintenance availabilities do not impact downstream SIOP projects. We believe improved SIOP governance combined with consistent funding will focus and accelerate this critical long-term initiative. It will enable the Navy to sustain nuclear-powered warships we have now and the ones we are building for the future fleet. But despite what appears to be a serious commitment to deal with a massive facility maintenance backlog, the Government Accountability Office says there are reasons to be worried about how PSYOP is going. GAO says the backlog has actually grown by $1.6 billion over the past five years, and it now totals more than $7 billion. More than half the equipment in the shipyards is now past its planned service life. And at one yard, the Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia, facility condition ratings have gotten worse, not better. Diana Maurer is a GAO director for Defense Capabilities and Management. We have a number of concerns about PSYOP implementation. The Navy's estimated date for completing the individual shipyard plans has slipped to the end of 2024. As a result, we don't yet know the full details of what the Navy will upgrade and optimize how long that will take, or what it will cost. Second, as was mentioned, the estimated costs for the first three dry dock improvement projects have grown from just under $1 billion to nearly $6 billion. That does not bode well for the future costs of the 11 other planned dry dock projects. Third, we're concerned that these increasing dry dock costs could crowd out other planned improvements. Dry dock should be a top priority, but they are not the only priority. But Navy officials think they do understand how to control construction cost growth going forward. Naval Facilities Engineering Command, which is in charge of striking deals with contractors for the shipyard construction projects, is now engaging in discussions with vendors much earlier in the process. Meanwhile, the Navy has also placed a single senior official in charge of the overall PSYOP program, treating it with the same sort of management rigor as it would with a major defense acquisition program. Again, Jay Stephanie. One of the other lessons was uh, getting the design much more mature before we actually put out a formal estimate. That was another lesson we learned from Portsmouth and and Pearl as well. So I, I feel like the projects, the big projects that are in the next five years, we have the design's mature enough that we have confidence that there's not going to be continued growth uh, on those projects. 
Uh, do we have enough funding across the FedUp to do all the work that we have planned? In the five years of the FedUp, we have enough funding to do the work we need to do in those years. But GAO says there are still a lot of unknowns, partly because the PSYOP program isn't even fully developed yet. The PSYOP approach calls for each of the four public shipyards to have their own detailed investment plans, called an area development plan. Those detailed planning efforts have been delayed by three years, and the Navy doesn't currently expect them to be fully drafted until 2025. Maurer says GAO's biggest concern is that the shipyards simply don't have the capacity to service the newer classes of nuclear-powered ships it's adding to the fleet in the next couple decades, the Ford-class carrier and the Virginia-class submarine. The shipyards were built well over a century ago to repair wind and steam-powered ships. Their layout is far from efficient to maintain nuclear-powered vessels. Moving the people, equipment, and parts necessary to repair a submarine is like trying to drive the century-old streets of Boston. Perhaps most significantly, the Navy does not have enough dry dock capacity to meet the future maintenance needs of the fleet. In 2017, we found that the Navy lacked a comprehensive plan for addressing these significant problems. The Navy, to its credit, developed the PSYOP, created a program office to manage it, and kept Navy leadership informed of its progress. In late 2019, we took an in-depth look at the PSYOP. We found it was a decent first step essentially a series of plans to improve each of the shipyards. And at that time, the Navy estimated it would take 20 years and spend about $21 billion to implement its planned improvements. We found that initial cost estimate was unrealistically low. And the Navy emphasizes the PSYOP plan isn't just about digging out of the huge deferred maintenance backlog. Officials say by the time those area development plans are complete, they'll have answers for issues like outdated facility layout and inefficient workflows, too. Vice Admiral William Galinas says the Navy's consulting its own shipyard workforce to solve some of those problems as part of a separate effort called Naval Sustainment System Shipyard. Through the, uh, the process that we have right now, we target the workforce for specific things in terms of, you know, where do they see the barriers, where do they see the, the roadblocks. Um, you know, leadership within my organization and, and me personally getting into the shipyards, down to the waterfront, and sitting down with, and, and I'll say small groups of mechanics and, and supervisors, okay, to just kind of have a discussion, talk about what this, um, you know, Naval Sustainment System shipyard really is, what we're trying to get after, and does it really match with some of the challenges that they're seeing, you know, day to day in the work that they're doing. In some cases, we're seeing that, that close lash up. In other cases, we're not, okay, and, and we're starting to really see, you know, at the trade level down at the waterfront, the supervisors, you know, really starting to embrace some of the improvement initiatives that we're putting in place. And that, frankly, is where it really needs to start and to, uh, you know, to s- sustain what we're doing. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember 
looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on, and you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? 
Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.